0: Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. James and John, Zebedee's sons, came up to him Teacher, we have something we want you to do for us. What is it? I'll see what I can do. Arrange it, they said, so that we will be awarded the highest places of honor in your glory, one of us at your right, the other at your left. Jesus said, You have no idea what you're asking. Are you capable of drinking the cup I drink? Of being baptized in the baptism I'm about to be plunged into? Sure, they said, why not? Jesus said, come to think of it, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized in my baptism, but as to awarding places of honor, that's not my business. There are other arrangements for that. When the other ten heard of this conversation, they lost their tempers with James and John. Jesus got them together to settle things down. You've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around, he said. And when people get a little power, how quickly it goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not to be served, and then to give away his life in exchange for many who are held hostage. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for your word, the way it challenges us, the way it challenges our thinking, the way it challenges us to come out from the world's view and to fully embrace your view in every area of our lives and particularly in this area of leadership. Lord, help us to understand your truth and to apply it in every instance in our lives, to apply it to our hearts, to change our minds to agree with you and not the world. Thank you, and thank you for the salvation that you have offered to us freely by simply putting our trust in your Son. If there's even one in either service this morning who needs to make that decision, I pray that you would draw them to yourself and that they might trust Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Leroy Imes, in his devotional book, Daily Discipleship, tells this story. When I was a kid, he said, I read Flash Gordon comic books. His archenemy was Ming the Merciless. Ming had piercing eyes, lips that curled in a snare in a sneer, a coat that sparkled And shoulders that stuck way out, he was the picture of power and authority. And I I was interested in that phrase, he was the picture of power and authority, because that's the topic of our passage uh, that we started looking at last week from Mark chapter 10. And we're going to finish this morning in Mark chapter 10. Power and authority to Leroy Imes when he was reading the comic book was imposing, frightening, You know, that's great for a comic book. It's not so good for a church. It's great for a comic book. It's not so good for a church. And as you look at a passage like this and you try to teach a passage like this, you wonder if the congregation will see the relevance in it and say, well, that was something the disciples needed, but perhaps we're past that today. Well, just about a decade ago, There was a a pastor, a prominent, influential pastor who was relieved of his duties. He was the founding pastor of the church. He was relieved of his duties, and some of the things said about him is he was involved in bullying and intimidating behavior. Uh, He was accused of a laundry list of abusive behaviors, fostering an abusive leadership environment in the church. This is just in the last decade, folks. A Affiliated church with this pastor, some folks who attended this church said this, our story ended with scandal and abuse by a pastor obsessed with hierarchy and power. So, Hopefully, we'll see the relevance in, see in this and see that it still goes on today, the idea that there are those who uh, want power and authority and are willing to run over other people to uh, use that power and authority. In another place, a writer said this, talking about Judges 9 and the tyranny of Abimelech the king. The lesson for us is clear. A selfish leader can bring untold grief to people under him. This holds true in a family, a church, an organization, or a nation. What kind of spiritual leadership opportunity is God giving you today? It could be in your family, your church, or with a small group of people hungry to grow in their Christian faith. Whatever opportunity, accept it as a call from God, step out of Out in faith and seek his grace to be an unselfish leader. The Lord is waiting to do great things through you. Just to remind you what we've been learning about in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. First of all, in God's kingdom, greatness is defined by service, not status and not position. In God's kingdom, greatness is defined by service, not status. And not position. The second thing we've been learning as we've looked at this is we mistake authority for greatness. We too often mistake authority for greatness. Uh, A third thing I want to see this week, particularly in the latter part of our passage, uh, I want to see this one as one writer put it rank in the kingdom of God is determined by God. Rank in the kingdom of God is determined. By God, and secondly, the writer said, "Rank is gained through suffering. Rank is gained through suffering." The devotional writer, talking about Jesus after His resurrection, showing His hands and His feet feet to the disciple in John chapter twenty, says this: What was Jesus trying to get across? by showing them his his scars from the cross. In effect, he was saying, men, this ministry is no bed of roses. This is no stroll in the park. Following me may cost you your life. To the apostles' credit, they did not turn back. They were captured by the vision of taking the good news of Jesus Christ to all the world. And then the writer said this, I want to be that kind of person. Do you? Jesus tells his disciples again in our passage that suffering is at the heart of service. Suffering is at the heart of service. Well, what a message to the men who would inaugurate the church age. What a message Mark chapter 10 verses 35 to 45 is to the men who would be used to inaugurate the church age they were to be servants not masters they were to be servants not lord now lords now we often talk about what jesus taught the disciples and we often apply it to our own lives but have you ever thought about where in the scripture do we see that they actually got it You know, so much of what we've seen in Mark chapter 10 is that the disciples didn't get it. Jesus would talk about His crucifixion. He would talk about His coming passion. He would talk about His death and His burial and His resurrection. And they would immediately begin talking about their own greatness. And we often wonder, perhaps, did the disciples ever get it? Did they ever understand what He was saying? Did they ever apply in their lives the teaching that he is teaching there in Mark chapter 10. And encouragingly, we have evidences that they did. They did get it. I want you to turn toward the back of your Bible to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, where we see that Peter got it. 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter is talking to elders of the church He's talking to leaders of the church. And he says this in chapter 5 and verse 1, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers not because you must but because you're a willing as God wants you to be not greedy for money but eager to serve now if you've turned there underline number verse 3 not lording it over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock Peter got it Peter got it Jesus taught him that they should not exercise authority as lords over other people. They should not exercise authority to be dominant and dominating over other people, but rather they should serve one another. And here we see that Peter, as he instructs elders, instructs them not to lord it over those entrusted to them. Peter got it. Peter got it. John also is another example of one who got it. One of the prominent features of John's gospel is found in John 13, and you can write that down, or you can look at that passage. You will remember John 13 is where Jesus does what? Anybody remember? He washes the disciples' feet. He washes the disciples' feet. John I thank God it because he spent so much time as he introduced the coming passion of Jesus Christ, as they introduced Jesus' suffering and death and burial and resurrection for you and for me, as he introduced that whole section and introduced Jesus' talk, teaching, where did he begin? He began with Jesus taking the part of a servant. We read in John chapter 13, It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus It was the job of the lowliest servant of the household to wash the feet of guests as they came uh, to a dinner. And the reason that they needed their feet washed is because they walked the dusty, dirty streets of uh, the city that they were in, uh, in this case, Jerusalem. They walked those streets, and uh, we don't even want to talk about on a Sunday morning what else was in that dust and dirt. Uh, It was a nasty place. And so you would come into somebody's house and as a courtesy to you, the lowliest servant in the entire house would wash your feet to wash that dust and that dirt and that muck off your feet uh, as you went to dinner. Well, as the disciples come in, each one of them takes their place at the table ready to be served but not one of them thought to wash the feet of the others. I can almost imagine it. They're looking around and thinking, well, isn't Peter going to do it? Well, isn't John going to do it? Well, isn't you know, James going to do it? Who's going to do it? I'm not going to do it. If I do it, I'm taking the place of the lowliest servant in the place. I want a higher position than that. But John finally got it because he records for us what occurred at that supper when Jesus removed his outer garment, put a towel around him, and he went from disciple to disciple washing their feet. Well, you know what happened in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And he did, and the others did as we we see in passages like 1 Peter 5 and John 13. You do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. But Peter never got up to wash anybody's feet. He just was sure that Jesus shouldn't wash his. What a message Jesus is communicating to these disciples. And the great thing is they got it. They got it. No, said Peter, you should never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Give me a bath. Let's not stop at my feet. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. That is, Peter had been cleansed. And would be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are cleansed. You are cleansed. But you see, we walk in this world, don't we? This dirty, dusty, muck-filled world. And sometimes we get the dirt of the world on our feet. And we need to confess it. That's what Jesus is talking about here When he had finished washing his feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And they got it. Finally, Jesus had prepared them. And had prepared them by showing that he, the greatest authority of all, he, the greatest power of all, could take the place of the lowliest servant. One writer said, the, this passage stresses the humility of Jesus. He is prepared to wash his disciples' feet. At a Christian seminary in India, there is a statue of Jesus watch, washing Peter's feet. Hindu visitors to the seminary often pause to admire it. They assume it depicts a disciple falling down in worship at Jesus' feet. They are astonished to learn that it is Jesus who is kneeling. we should be astonished to learn that it's Jesus who is kneeling. And these Hindu visitors say how he must love his disciples. We see here a superb illustration of the idea of a servant king, someone who has authority but exercises it by serving rather than dominating others. That's the lesson. That's the lesson for the disciples. That's the lesson for you. That's the lesson for me. This is the superb illustration of the servant king. Someone who has authority but exercises it by serving rather than dominating others. And I have shared with you before and in fact we gave some of these out about a year ago that in one of my courses summer courses after i graduated seminary our teacher was trying to illustrate for us what jesus did in john chapter 13 and he inducted us into the order of the towel and some of you have been inducted into the order of the towel but i have carried for over 40 years in my bible this little piece of terry cloth as a reminder that I belong to the one who took the towel and served others and washed their feet. Now, Some of you have these from when we handed them out about a year ago. If you would like one, there are still some left. In fact, there are quite a few left. Please just see me and I'll see that you get one. Well, what a message to the men who would be used to inaugurate the church age, that they were to be servants, not masters, servants, not lords. Peter got it. John got it. We are to be servants, not just in the church, servants out in the world. We are to be servants to our spouse. We are to be servants to our children. We are to be servants on the job. And of course, servants in the church. Well, we read in verse 42 after Jesus addresses the disciples in verse 41 of Mark. Chapter 10. In verse 42, Jesus calls the disciples together and says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He turns the world's view upside down. He turns the world's view upside down. He, instead of the world's standard of greatness, we are to embrace Jesus' standard of greatness. Not power, not authority, not position, not status. Not how many are at my beck and call, but how many may I serve? That's what Jesus calls us to. Jesus isn't interested in producing rulers. He's, introduced, he's interested in producing servants. He's not introduced, in, interested in producing rulers, but he is trying to produce servants. This test for my life and for your life is not what service can I extract from others, but what way might I serve others. Jesus affirms, one writer said, the importance of servant leadership. Jesus affirms the importance of servant leadership. The world's idea of greatness is to rule. Christian greatness consists in serving. The world's ambition is to receive honor and attention. The Christian's desire should be to give others honor and attention, to attend to others rather than to be attended by others. The world's idea of greatness is crowns and ranks and wealth and high position. God's way is in devoting ourselves to the care of the weakest and the lowliest of his flock. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. Tony Dungy in the devotional book I've mentioned to you from time to time has a section on what he calls mentor leadership. I think that you could actually take that term mentor leadership and change it to servant leadership as Jesus does here Dungy says this leadership isn't always about having the right answer or about telling others what to do. As a matter of fact, leadership is not about either of those things. There are plenty of smart, aggressive people who are very poor leaders. Instead, leadership, particularly the kind of leadership Christ exemplified and calls us to, is all about serving others. Mentor leadership, or what we're calling servant leadership, calls us to focus on a point outside ourselves because such leadership must be others-directed and others-inspired. It's not always easy, and it's certainly not our natural tendency. Mentor leadership runs contrary to the prevailing wisdom of the world, which focuses on personal success, achievement, and advancement. We have all seen the organizational charts, flow charts, he says, with the primary leader at the top and everyone else in the department or company flowing down from there. Mentor leadership flow flow charts invert standard organizational charts. The leader appears at the bottom of the chart, serving and lifting those above, modeling servanthood to all. Our world insists on looking out for number one, Mentor leaders do not follow that directive. Instead, they look out for others. You know that those who are regarded as rulers, Jesus says, of the Gentiles, lorded over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. And not so with us. Oswald Chambers said, the great hindrance in spiritual life is that we will look for big things to do. But Jesus took a towel and began to wash the disciples' feet. We love big service. We love big service that draws attention to ourselves. but our service is so that we might draw attention to Jesus Christ, not to ourselves. In a recent uh, Daily Bread, the writer was talking about the priests, the Gershonites and the Kohathites and the Merarites, who were assigned seemingly mundane tasks cleaning the furniture, the lampstands, the curtains, the posts, the tent pegs, and the ropes. Yet their jobs were specifically designed by God. The writer makes the point that the priests got the glory, so to speak, but were no more important than these who took care of the physical, The mundane tasks of cleaning the furniture and the lampstands and the curtains and the posts and the tent pegs. The writer says, What an encouraging thought. Today, what many of us do at work, at home, or in church may seem insignificant to a world that values titles and salaries, but God sees it differently. If we work and serve for His sake, seeking excellence and doing so for his honor, even in the smallest task, then our work is important because we are serving our great God. So whatever the service God has called me to, whatever the service God has called you to, he receives glory and we fulfill his desire for us by doing that, whether it is seen by the world as menial or it is seen by the world as great. That's not the important point. The important point is doing what God has laid out before us. I mentioned earlier Leroy Imes. He has a section about Nehemiah chapter 3 which says the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. That is... Even the priests and the high priests participate in the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. Imagine that, he said, holy priests doing common labor. But verse 5 mentions the section of the wall repaired by the men of Tekoa whose nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. When we are doing God's work, when we are doing God's will, there are no menial tasks. There are no tasks beneath us that we might do. I'm says this, even the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, did not come to be served, but to serve. Service takes many forms, some highly visible and some behind the scenes, but each each type is essential for the work of God. Each type is essential for the work of God. Well, Jesus goes on to say, not so with you, verse 43. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And then he gives as himself the greatest example of all that you and I could find anywhere The example of himself, where he says, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If Jesus himself came, and and I I don't have time this morning. My hourglass is vastly running, quickly running out. Uh, I want to give Steve plenty of time. Jesus is the example. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Servant in this passage is diakonos, that is one who volunteers useful service to another. Slave in this passage is doulos, one who forfeits his own rights to serve another. Jesus did not come to be served. And if you want to see another passage, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's great poem of Jesus' incarnation, of Jesus' humanity, and he came in the form of a servant. He came in the form of a servant. Why did he do that? He came to give his life. The climax of Jesus' service was his death. I want you to think about or write down four words in your Bible or on your sermon note sheet. Write down four words about Jesus' death. His death was voluntary. His death was sacrificial. His death was vicarious and his death was obedient. Voluntary, sacrificial, vicarious, and obedient. What does he mean when he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word for ransom there is the word lutron in Greek, and it means the price paid to free a slave. You see, you and I, were in slavery to sin and death. You and I were in slavery to sin and death before we came to faith in Jesus Christ before we knelt before the cross and took Jesus as our Savior and embraced Him as our Savior. How could we be free from sin? How could we be free from death? Because Jesus paid the price. He paid the price to free us as even the Lutron or ransom was paid to free a slave. The price of release of slaves or the price of release of captives from bondage. You and I have been released. We have been redeemed. People are captive under the power of sin and death and cannot free themselves through Jesus' death, his substitutionary death, his vicarious death, he paid the price that set us free. He paid the price that set us free. Jesus said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word for is the word "anti" in Greek, and it means instead of or in place of. That is, Jesus was your substitute and my substitute on that cross. When he hung there, he took your sins and my sins. When he hung on that cross, he took your death and my death. He came to serve and he came to save. And he is the supreme example of what you and I Ought to be and do. Oswald Chambers said, No matter how men may treat me, they will never treat me with the spite and hatred with which I treated Jesus Christ. When we realize that Jesus Christ has served us to the end of our meanness, our selfishness and sin, nothing that we meet with from others can exhaust our determination to serve men. For his sake. Let's pray. Father, may we determine in our hearts to be people of the towel, people of the order of the towel, remembering our Savior, remembering how the lives of the disciples went from being concerned about their own greatness to teaching us about the greatness of Jesus Christ. to teaching us about the need to serve one another. Thank you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.